Amen. Go ahead, grab a seat. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kyle. Uh, Happy Halloween, happy Reformation Day, happy Sunday, whatever you celebrate on October 31st. We are just so happy to have you here worshiping with us. As we kind of continue along in worship, I just want to take a moment to sort of pause and reflect on some of the stuff that's going on in our church, and then we're going to return to a song, Lord, I Need You, in a minute, and we're going to pray together in a minute before we come back and uh, come into the message. But I just want to sort of share some stuff where we're at as a church. Last Sunday night, we had a a vision night, and it was an opportunity for anyone who was able to, to come to this place, and we spent some time just sort of walking through where do we think God is calling us. Uh, I shared a bit, a bunch of staff shared. We had some some leaders who got interviewed and shared from their heart where they were at. We took some time to, to pray for our church community, for the community around us and for our world. And it was just a really great night. And so I want to bring a little bit, some of that to all of you who weren't able to make it. Uh, because I think we all need to hear it and we need to know where we're going. Uh, While I'll give you a taste today, I will encourage you to go online. We have it on YouTube. We videoed the whole thing. And it's a great opportunity to hear and some great questions were asked as well. We had a question and answer time and we got to respond to some of them. So it's a great opportunity for you to get to know uh, where we're at as a church. But basically, what I ended up sharing about sort of a vision is that we've come to this place as a church where We sort of feel like God is calling us to step into a few uh, sort of convictions that he wants to lead us in. Traditionally, when we think about uh, visions, though, we we think this big five-year vision sort of thing, maybe 10-year vision, it's got a really great catchphrase, maybe it lines up with a certain number. I know a lot of churches, we're going to do 2020 vision, and ooh, did that stink. Um, But, uh, you know, (laughs) that's not where we've come to, though. We felt like as a church, where, where God is giving us vision isn't so much that he's illuminating the big picture, but that he is calling to us to a faithful obedience as he sort of gives us one light at a time. And we feel that he's sort of leading us in a way where we have sort of one light bulb turning on and we're taking the next step. And that started with a number of years ago, we decided to sort of reframe our our mission as a church. How are we going to articulate what God has called us to do? And so we came up with a mission statement which encapsulates the Great Commission. And we say it this way. We say that we exist to lead people to be passionate followers of Jesus. We love obedience. We love this faithful direction and connection that God calls us to. But we we chose that word passionate because we want to be on fire for God. We want to be so exhilarated in what we do for him, and we want to invite other people into not just something that's the mundane, but something that is exciting and transformative. And so we call people in to follow Jesus because he has the ability to light a passion in us that is unprecedented in any other way or place of life. And so we came up with this this mission statement and then sort of the next light bulb that came on as we were wrestling was we were thinking, well, how are we actually going to how are we going to do that? Because we can say a nice statement. It can have a nice sentiment. But, but what does that look like for us to flesh that out? And so our, 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 our staff and our elders and our fellowship denomination, we gathered together. We wrestled through over a period of two years a way to articulate a discipleship plan. How can we 
as individuals of a church collectively work towards a certain set of things that Scripture tells us will help us become passionate followers of Jesus and live out this mandate that he's given us. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in the message today. But we, we've come and we've got our mission, we've got our discipleship plan, and then we're sort of ready and we were looking and going, God, what's next? And, and the great interruption of life that's been 2020, 2021, caused us to sort of stop and pause. And we wrestled with God, and actually it was a really good thing. You know, I think sometimes having these big lofty plans and visions can sometimes actually distract us from our great need of God. And so we have spent a ton of time wrestling through what is something core that we need to figure out? What are some of the big pieces that we need to hone in on? We felt like God has sort of brought us these three different sort of convictions that we as a church have to step into trying to faithfully follow at this time. And the three convictions are this. One, that we need to put Jesus over everything. Two, that we need to seek unity over division. And three, that we need to pursue connection over consumption. And each of those three statements, I sort of expand on them in the vision video if you go and watch it. But to give you a snapshot is is this idea that first and foremost, we want to put Jesus over everything. There's just so much in life to distract us. There's so many things that seem so big and so uh, opposing and so oppressive, and it just feels like we can be really daunted and defeated where there's so much social conversation that's going on in the world, and we believe that in all of those areas, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is over everything. And so that's why we're really focusing on, on the message of Matthew right now as a church, is because we believe that this is the time where we need to kind of zone in and see how Jesus will speak to all these things, the social things, the, the things that we'll face in the world, in our own lives, but, but in all of them, Jesus supersedes The next thing we came to see then, though, is this idea of unity over division. Wow, is there ever division, right? Like everywhere we go, you can't go to a family gathering, you can't go to a workplace, you can't go to a sporting field, you can't go anywhere without there being huge divisive conversations, huge negative attitudes towards one another. And we just want to push back against that as a church. We recognize that our church is really a weird mix of people who come from the left and from the right and from different views on all sorts of things. We come from different theological and church backgrounds, and we recognize that there's lots of diversity, but that doesn't mean that there needs to be division. We actually want to focus on unity in the midst of everything. We're not seeking conformity with one another. If you're a Star Trek fan, we're not looking for the Borg here. We're looking for people who would embrace one another as they walk with each other in the way of Jesus. And so we believe that Jesus has set a very clear precedent. And it's very clear because in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed over his disciples, he said, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I were one. And when they are, the world will know you and I and the love we have. And we believe that right now, if we can band together and be unified, even in our difference, if we can do it without division, we have an opportunity to be an incredible beacon of hope in our community and in the world as we point to Jesus over everything. And so we want to seek those two things, and then we want to see the, seek the third, which is connection over consumption. 
church has always been a thing where people have come to it and come to kind of get our hit. We kind of get our high so we can ride through the week and then we can come back next Sunday depleted and get another one. And, and I don't say that to sort of mock the fact that the church is the place where we need to come and sometimes we are coming in low. And church needs to be a place where we get refueled. But the problem is when we all come and do that, we deplete what actually takes place here. Instead, what we need to do is we need to be building one another up. Instead of viewing our life as the lake at the end of a river and all the streams of people flow into it to pour into us, we should each see ourselves as the different creeks and streams which flow into the river of life so that we can overflow into the world with the good news of the message of Jesus. I heard one pastor from Atlanta say it this way. He says, do you come to church to worship or do you come worshiping to church? How do we come? How do we participate, not just in the, on a Sunday morning, but in community group, through programs throughout the week, as we think about outreaching into our community? What's the attitude by which we come to engage? We think that if we come with a, an attitude that we're here to connect and pour into others, that we will be refilled, but we will also stoke the fire and fan the flame that comes and takes part in this place so that we can go out and again bring this message of Jesus over everything. And so church, that's what we're kind of trying to focus on right now. We'd really encourage you to be praying, seeking God, and how can I take part? Where are perhaps my attitude or my heart beats not in line with what the attitude that God wants for us? And, and just jump in on that. And so that's what we're going to pray about in just a minute. But I have uh, just one other thing. And this sort of actually illustrates how this goes out and plays out. One of the other things that questions that was asked on the Sunday is about our next uh, worship director. And we had indicated at our last meeting that we had extended an offer to somebody uh, to come and be our next worship leader. Uh, but since then, that has sort of fallen apart. And the reason that fell apart is because as we sat down right before we, as we were hashing through the employment stuff is I came and I just brought forward some, some real strong convictions and philosophies that our church is holding as we try to pursue some of this stuff. And this gentleman came with other very strong convictions and philosophies about how he wants to see the church move forward. And we realized that the two weren't in line and that they weren't going to work well together. And that does not mean, we're, I, this is not a disparaging statement. He has incredible skills. He has a wonderful spirit. He has a great way of thinking about some of the stuff he wants to do, but we have some big differences. And we, so, so we thought, in light of the fact that we're pursuing some things wholeheartedly with one philosophy, it might be best for him to go find the church where he can pursue his vision and his philosophy wholeheartedly. And so he and I met earlier this week, and we just decided, hey, let's pray for each other, let's bless each other, and let's go our separate ways. And so that's where we're at as a church. We're continuing to, to seek uh, a new worship director to come and lead us. We can be thankful, though, that we have amazing worship team members, some who are here. Many of you are out there and will be in the other services. We are really actually quite blessed to have a church that's really brought, to, that God has brought us a number of people who are incredibly gifted, who have huge hearts of worship. And so I encourage you as well, as we go through uh, our continued search for this, encourage these leaders, encourage those who get up 
and sacrifice their time and really pray through and wrestle through how they can lead us in worship because they really are coming with this heart of connection over consumption and I'm so thankful for them. So thank you, team. Uh, And so yeah, with that in mind, what I'd love for us to do is just to spend a moment in prayer. Let's take time and I'm just gonna leave a moment of silence for us to just wrestle through, maybe ask the Lord where you can work through this, maybe whatever he's laid on your heart and then I'll pray over our time together and then we're gonna continue in worship by singing the song, Lord, I Need You. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we acknowledge that everything is for your glory and to magnify who you are and, and that you are the God that stands above everything. And, and Lord God, I just pray as a church, Lord, would we learn how to wrestle through some of the things like the, the division that we face in the world, the depletion we, we, we face and, and feel like we just need to consume. And Lord God, would you help us to, to reorient our, our hearts and our minds towards you so, Lord God, that we see things in a new way and the way that you call us to. God, I pray that we would be a church who would be, be unified in bringing about your glory, that we would bring people in to follow you, that we would set our lives in, in a reoriented fashion so that everything we do would, would be focused on you. And God, in all of that, would we raise your name. Jesus, would you be seen above everything. Holy Spirit, help us, guide us, we pray. Lord God, I pray for the next individual that you would have come to be a part of our church family on our leadership team. Lord God, we pray that you would be already stirring in their hearts to come to to join us. But Lord God, as we wait for the person that, that you will bring, God, I pray that you would encourage those who, who lead us here as part of our church family. God, we thank you for the diversity of gifts and abilities that you have given to this church family so that we can see your name praised so that we can uh, especially for those of us who aren't maybe aren't quite so musical can have some people help us guide us into musical worship and lord god i just pray in all of these things again that you would be glorified lord god would you help us to have attitudes of thanksgiving as a church as we wait and sometimes that's difficult god i pray for for Steve, even though it didn't work out for him to be here, Lord God, would you lead him to the place where he can use his gifts and abilities, that he can live out the philosophies that you have laid on his heart, and God, would we be able to celebrate that in worship. But Lord God, now in all these things, would we come to you back in response, Lord God, as we sing this next song, would it be the attitude and posture of our hearts, and Lord God, would we receive exactly what we need? And so, Lord, we give over this time to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church, can we stand and worship? We sang the song uh, last week, but I just felt the need to sing it again, uh, just building on what Kyle said. Just There's moments even this week where I'm just like, ah, enough of this 
turmoil and chaos. My brain can't take it anymore. And then I'm always drawn to the lyrics of this song. I need you, Lord. I need you every hour. I need you. For me, it's kind of like every second, every minute I need God. So I just invite us to rest in the words of this song this morning. Lord, I come and I confess Bowing here I find my rest Without you I fall apart You're the one that guides my heart Lord, I need you
defense my righteousness oh god how i need you my one defense my righteousness oh god seated. So living the Christian life is all about committing to a radical reorientation of the way we live. When we talk about wanting to passionately follow Jesus, it means we have to passionately do certain things in order to live up to the life that Jesus has called us to. But as we face the different things that are talked about in Scripture, that we talk about sort of as as a church in terms of these are the things that we can do to connect with Him, to experience Him more, to become more like Him, sometimes I think the question still nags, but why? Why do we pray? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we fast? Why do we do all these different sorts of spiritual disciplines? Like, what is it really about them? Because I think sometimes we really just treat these things as the good things to do, right? We're told, well, that you grow up in the church and they say, you should do this every day. And we go, okay, well, a good Christian does that. But sometimes there becomes a disconnect between what a good Christian does and what those things really exist for. And today we're going to hopefully answer the question of why. Why do we participate in different spiritual disciplines? What is the purpose really? And we're going to do that by looking at a text where Jesus and his disciples are questioned why they aren't doing a particular spiritual discipline. If you've got your Bible, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be looking at at just a few verses. We're looking at verses 14 to 17. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 to 17. And as we arrive here, what we'll see is that Jesus is in the midst of sort of Uh, a combative season, if you will. He's walking around and talking to different people, bringing healing, bringing hope. But as he does this, he keeps encountering different people groups who question him. Well, what gives you the authority to say that you can forgive people's sins? Why do you end up doing that? And then here what we see is that as Jesus and his disciples encounter his cousin, John the Baptist and his disciples, there comes sort of a butting of heads in that they wonder why Jesus isn't doing something. So up to this point, we've seen people questioning Jesus, why are you? Here we ask them asking Jesus, why aren't you? As Jesus and his disciples have been journeying around, they've been traveling around the city and the region, they've crossed over the Sea of Galilee and come back, they've, they've lived some life together, and in the usual Jew, Jewish sort of culture, during those types of seasons, you would do certain practices. And one that was of a special importance, particularly to John the Baptist and his followers, was the discipline of fasting. 
But John the Baptist and his followers look, and as they watch and study Jesus, as they encounter him in different places, as they probably saw him in the temple court, walking and talking and debating with other rabbis, they see that he's not participating, and so they wonder why. And that's sort of where we pick up today in verse 14. We see, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? To which Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is a bit of a, a, a funny section of Scripture, if I could. I think a lot of us come to this. I don't know about you, but I've read this many times over my journey of reading through the Bible. And it kind of stands out as a bit unusual because of Jesus' response and the metaphors uh, that he has to say. But ultimately what happens in this passage is that when John and his disciples come to Jesus and say, why don't you fast, Jesus' response is, well, why would we? Why don't you fast, Jesus? This is something we're all doing. And Jesus says, but why? That's an interesting sort of way to respond. It's very Jesus-y. Jesus likes to respond to questions with questions. And then he likes to sort of unfurl his teaching, sometimes in some peculiar ways. And in particular, in this time, he uses three very specific illustrations. But before we can understand the illustrations, we have to understand why this is such a big deal. Why are John's disciples, why are the Pharisees questioning Jesus in this? Well, the reason they're questioning Jesus and his disciples and their behavior is because fasting for them is a quintessential part of religious life. And it's actually become something that's quite a big deal. Originally in the Old Testament law, there was only one time that fasting was prescribed. It was prescribed as a time of repentance, so they would mourn and they would abstain from food as a way of seeking forgiveness from God at the Day of Atonement. And it became this really time-honored tradition, which still carries through for Jewish people today to fast on the Day of Atonement. But what these religious elite determined was that because this is such uh, an honoring time, because it's such a significant thing that the people of God would do, they would end up incorporating it more often in their life. And so it was very common for the Pharisees and for the religious elite to set themselves apart, not spiritually, but from the rest of the people by fasting. They would show how spiritual they are. Well, while you guys only do this one day a week, we do it all the time. Well, you guys only seek God one time a year, we seek him multiple times a week. And many of the Pharisees actually got to the point where they would fast from food and drink twice a week. 
religiously, and I mean that word in every sense of it. They would fast on, on mon- at the beginning of the week on Mondays and then at the end of the week, and they would do this for a number of different reasons. They would say that they were doing it to, to mourn and to repent and to seek forgiveness from God. Sometimes they would say they were doing it to seek divine deliverance. God, would you come and rescue me or us from some terrible circumstance or from the fact that the Romans are oppressing us, and they would sort of set it up as this very, look at us, we're close to God, we're going to pull them in, or sometimes they would just do it for the very fact that it made them look really spiritual. But all the while, there would be this undercurrent of where it truly started, which I think was genuine, in that they wanted to connect with God. And so they couldn't help but wonder, why, Jesus, aren't you doing this? If this is what good religious people do, shouldn't you be doing it? If you're really a big shot teacher who has the ability to lead people towards God, why aren't you showing them how they too can be really spiritual people? Why are you leading your disciples astray is essentially what John's disciples are asking him. And that's where Jesus responds, well, I hear what you're doing, but why would they do that? John Wycliffe once wrote, he said, the gospel alone is sufficient to rule the lives of Christians everywhere. Any additional rules made to govern men's conduct added nothing to the perfection already found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What John Wycliffe was saying there is essentially what Jesus is saying. Why do you add a bunch of stuff to what is already perfect? The reason the Pharisees were fasting was to seek connection with God. Jesus' response is, why would my disciples do that? Because I'm already here. You guys are looking for me. I'm here. You're fasting so you can feast on the presence of God. Well, my disciples are already feasting. They're sitting down at the table with me. And he explains that all through these series of three sort of increasingly strange to us illustrations, but which are just illustrations that would have made total sense to his audience. In verse 15, he starts with this illustration of a wedding. In verse 15, he says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. A wedding day is such a poignant example for Jesus to to, to give towards these people because in the Jewish tradition, weddings and wedding terminology had a lot of big meaning. First of all, it was a huge cultural celebration. I mean, weddings in ancient Israel are nothing like weddings are today. I mean, how many of us went to a, a wedding this summer? Anyone go to a wedding this summer? How long did you spend there? Six hours? Eight hours? Weddings in our culture are very short occasions. And, and, and they sort of are, are very quickly structured, and they all move from one thing to another. I, I had the privilege of performing a couple weddings these summers, and they're great, but they're very different from what happened there. In a wedding in our day, a, a, a ceremony is 20, 30 minutes, uh, 45 if it's a really long ceremony. 
And then you move from that to a reception that, that, that takes place a couple hours later because there's some photo ops and photo time. And then we go and we eat dinner and we spend some time together, but it's just short enough so that the bride and groom can still have energy to head off to do what they do. And then everybody else goes home and can get in bed at a good time. This is a wedding in our culture. It's very succinct. We know the pattern. You know what you expect, even if you don't know the couple very well because we have it set up. Well, in ancient Israel, this is totally different. Weddings, on average, were seven days in length. And it was a party. I mean, like, a real party. There was food and drink. It wasn't just, you know, the 80 closest people. It was everybody in the community who you could possibly be tied to. They'd shut down businesses. They'd leave all their work. And they would come into the city, and they would have a party. This was a time of celebration, and it wasn't something to be cut short. And so in this culture where fasting and massive weddings took place, you would think there would be a discrepancy, but there wasn't. They honored both. But the rule was you never fast at a wedding because a wedding's about feasting. It's about celebration. And it's about depicting some of the things that we read about in the Old Testament. And this is where Jesus' words end up becoming even more impactful for a first century Jew than we would ever know. In this illustration, Jesus calls himself a bridegroom. He's, we don't use it that, the word that way anymore. We'd call him the groom of the wedding. He's the guy who's going to get up and he's going to take his bride and he's going to bring her in to his family. Well, to us, that's okay. Like, that's a nice illustration. Well, to them, this was bordering on blasphemous. Because all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the groom of his people. If you go to places like Isaiah 62, Hosea 2, we see that the people of God are the bride and God is the groom and he will win his people to himself. He will bring them in no matter what they are like before they will become a part of his family. Elsewhere, we'll see that this term of groom or bridegroom is given to the Messiah. This will be the chosen one sent from God to rescue people into his kingdom who will establish a border around them, who will protect them, who will govern their lives and keep them safe and love them through all things. When Jesus says, I am the groom, he's saying to them, I am God. Why do the people need to fast to go looking for God when I am he and here am I? This isn't a time for fasting. This is a time for feasting. Jesus says, there will be a time when I will be taken from these disciples, and then that is the time that they will fast. The time to go looking for connection with me when I'm not physically present will come, but for now, here I am. And so that's the first of his illustrations. Then he moves on to to give us a a few more bits of understanding about how things will change. And and really what he ends up teaching on in these next two is that the structures and systems of understanding who he is and how he will relate with people will change. And so the next illustration is from fashion. And he uses uh, this illustration in verse 16. He says, No one sews on a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse. 
If anyone's ever patched clothes, you know that clothes shrink over time and they change and the material becomes more brittle. So you can't take a new patch and sew it on to fit just right because what will happen is that material that's new, that hasn't shrunk, that hasn't been worn, will shrink over time. And so what once filled that space perfectly will end up shrinking and tearing away at everything that it was supposed to hold together. It just doesn't work, Jesus is saying. The way that I have come to set up my structures and the way things should be doesn't work with the old system. And he continues to build this on with the next illustration, which is about winemaking. Verse 17, neither do people pour new wines into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. So no, so no, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Again, uh, uh, an illustration for the day of Jesus. We go... We want a bottle of wine, we go and we go to a liquor store, we buy a bottle of wine, it's a nice glass bottle, we can reuse this bottle as much as we want. Is it a vase? Maybe. We want more wine, we go, we get it sterilized, we take it to the U-Brew place, we fill it up, and now we have more wine, and we can do this over and over and over and over and over again. Not so in the day of Jesus. For them to carry wine, which was a necessary drink in their culture without sanitized water and uh, the dangers of everything that lurked, they needed to have wine and they needed to be able to carry that with them. No glass bottles. So what did they do? They killed an animal, they tanned its hide, they sewed the hide up into a bag and voila, now we have a bottle. But the problem is this isn't a reusable bottle. This ain't no Nalgene. This thing is broken after you use it once. Because the problem is the new wine, when it was poured into this animal hide, would continue to ferment. It was all part of the process. They didn't ferment it all in these casks and barrels, then dump it in. No, they fermented it directly in the bottle. And so as the fermentation takes place, as the gases give off, the hide begins to stretch and grow and stretch and grow and make room for all these fermented gases. And this is totally fine in a new animal hide that's treated properly. It's elasticy. it's meant to grow, it can reshape in, it can change in volume in all sorts of different directions, not a problem. But once it's empty, that hide's already been stretched to its max capacity. So if you were to take new wine, which was now going to ferment and grow and stretch out something that was already stretched and brittle, what would you end up with? Wine on the ground because those seams would blow, the hide would tear, and you would just pour out all the liquid everywhere. And so Jesus says, this isn't going to work. The way you're thinking about things, the way you understand a relationship with God and how God is going to orchestrate his kingdom isn't going to work with the new way I'm bringing If I end up pouring this new kingdom, this new life, this new hope into the way that you have things going, it's just going to tear everything apart at the seams and it's not going to fit. It's going to be wasted. You're going to miss out on the refreshing drink that will be there after it ferments in your life. And so Jesus says, the reason my disciples don't go about things the way you go about things is because the way you're going about things doesn't fit with my kingdom. This is a really interesting set of teaching by Jesus because really he's building up to something far greater. 
We have to walk through all of the Gospel of Matthew, and in fact, through all of the New Testament, to pick up on all the different pieces that he's going to share. But as we go through this study, we see that things in people's minds and hearts and attitudes will need to be radically reoriented to a correct understanding so that they can experience all of what God would have for them. And that sort of answers our why. But before we get there, I want to take a little bit of a detour right here because this is a great opportunity for me to answer a question that is often asked. A lot of people ask questions, do Jesus and Judaism align? And really what a lot of people mean by that is, can Jews still be saved today by their lifestyle if God had made an old covenant promise with them and then Jesus came to die on the cross for us to live under a new covenant? And that's really churchy terminology, I get. But what this is basically saying is God had established a relationship with a set of people long, long ago. And he said, from you, I'm going to create a lineage of my people, and I am going to show my relationship with the people I've created through your family line. And then God gave them promises and God gave them laws to which they were to obey and God gave them ways to seek him and God gave ways to end up allowing them to come back into relationship when they failed those laws and those ways of living time and time again and and God would use this as a path to lead the people to him and to be in relationship with him and to bring himself glory and to keep people in his family but something changed Jesus came And Jesus came not to be the one who would tear down this system, but to be the one who would fulfill it. All along, as God spoke to those people, he he would say, I am one day going to send someone who will make things new. And they're going to establish my kingdom in a new way, and they are going to bring you into relationship with me in a new way. And ultimately, as we learn, as we look throughout the Gospels, that way is through having faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus does is he goes to the cross fully as God, someone who lived a perfect life and he dies for us because all of us have fallen short. All of us have failed to live up to that mandate that God had given for his people. All of us have failed in trying to stay in connection with the God of the universe. And so we have incurred a price, a debt, which scripture tells us is death. But none of us can die and come back again. So Jesus comes to do that for us. And so do Jesus and Judaism align? Yes, they align, but they don't run parallel. The one was meant to direct people towards Jesus so that when Jesus would come, we would know the fullness of what it would be like to be in perfect relationship with God. Jesus makes it very clear as he teaches, I'm, I'm, I'm no Abraham, I'm no Moses, I'm no Elijah, I'm no Jeremiah. I have come to be me, and all of those things point to here and now. And then where Jesus is going to lead them is into a radically new way of life from then on until eternity. The answer to the question, can Jews be saved? Absolutely, if they turn and put their faith in the person of Jesus. And that's the message that is true for any one of us today. Every single one of us comes with a series of faith background and religious practice, whether we're atheist, agnostic, or from any other faith group. We come with a way of living, and we have set up constructs and a way of understanding things. And the reality that Jesus tells us is that those won't hold 
the new wine. The only way to experience the refreshment, the joy, the hope, the peace, the relationship with God is through Jesus and the way he's done things. And the way he has set this all up for us to come into relationship with him is through the cross and then through a life of obediently following him and trying to pursue him at every corner. This is what Jesus wants us to understand, and it's such a beautiful picture because Jesus wants to use all these different languages of of mending what's broken. And I mean, how many of us are broken? He uses this illustration of providing a feast, which was a celebration of joy and hope and love. And how many of us need that joy, hope, and love in every day? He uses this illustration of this fresh wine, which is safe to drink, which brings refreshment and enjoyment. How many of us need that in our lives? Jesus says, if you need any of that, leave behind all the old systems and come to me because I have what you need. And that really is what leads us to understanding the fullness of what Jesus is teaching on fasting. And by extension, what all these spiritual practices we do are for. Again, a lot of us can view these spiritual disciplines, whether it's reading your Bible or praying or giving and serving, whether it's fasting, whether it's spending time in silence and solitude, practicing confession, all sorts of different disciplines. We can look at it as just a way to do the right thing to be spiritual people. But Jesus says that's not really what it's about. And the answer of what it's really about is all hidden right there, not hidden right there, but is revealed right there in verse 15. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. The purpose of what these men were trying to do in fasting would have been fulfilled by just looking and being in relationship with Jesus. The reason we do anything from reading our Bible to fasting to praying, any of those things, is all so that we can encounter the person of Jesus. It's about being in his presence and knowing him and seeing how he transforms our lives, how he brings about the new wine, how he brings about a newness, a freshness in us, how he takes away the old structures that that hold us back and don't allow us to to receive all that he would have for our flourishing. It allows us to, to tear those things away all while in his presence. A pastor from Texas named Matt Chandler once said this. He says, we can't live life for Jesus without living life with Jesus. The Pharisees had this wrong. They said, we can live our life for God, but they didn't live their life with God. God invites us in. He says, come and take time and spend it with me. Well, notice Jesus never bashed fasting. He didn't say, you guys are doing something totally out to lunch. He said, that wasn't the right time for it, but that day will come when I'm no longer here present with my disciples. This will be the time. And he's leading that all for us to understand that there is a time, which is now, for us to enter into God's presence. That changes and transforms the way we view our approach to practicing spiritual things. It changes our approach to understanding why do we come to church? Why do we sing on a Sunday? Why do I read my Bible? Like, why should I get up in the morning or do it at night? Why, why do I do these things? It's not to help us be a good Christian. It's to help us be with Christ. Our spiritual disciplines are not to help us be a good Christian. They're help to help us be with Christ. 
You'll notice in our discipleship plan that we have as a church, can we throw it up here? Yeah. We, 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 we've categorized that there's six different elements that we all need to participate in to have a whole of a Christian life. We believe that we need to gather for worship together, that we need to grow in community. Uh, we need to share in the work of the church. We need to get, engage in the mission by going out into the world and bringing the name of Jesus. We need to continue to expand in our knowledge and skill, and we need to spend time walking with Jesus. These are the six elements. What's not up there? Spiritual disciplines and spiritual prep practices, at least not as the Pharisees knew them. We use this language of walking with Jesus to mean that when we spend time walking through the ritualistic or rote things of our faith, we aren't doing them just to accomplish a checklist, to be good enough for him, to fit into the structure. We're doing them to walk with him and encounter the way he'll change your life. And it's such a good thing. One of the things that I have been learning to embrace in my own walk is something that some people would call practicing the presence of Jesus. And this was a, a term that was uh, coined by an old monk named Brother Lawrence who was a cook in a, a monastery. And what he would do is he would spend so much of his time doing sort of the menial tasks of being a person of faith that, that he felt at first that he didn't have enough that he wasn't able to spend enough time because when his brothers were off doing the different practices, there he was in the kitchen slaving away. And, and he discovered upon praying and spending time <clears throat> wrestling with God that God said to him, you know I'm here with you all along. You just have to practice being in my presence. And so how he went about every single thing he did, what he started to do was not change what he did, but reframe the way of thinking about it. What would God be saying to me in this moment? What would God have to say about my attitudes and actions? What do I need to learn from him here and now in this place? And he applied that not just to his cooking and to his cleaning, but to every aspect of his life. How often do we come to our time of of reading the Bible or praying and we come to it to worship instead of coming already worshiping to the place that we need to encounter God. We can come into these practices and say, hey, Jesus, I just want to spend time with you and I want to get to know you and what would you have to say to me today? That's very different than saying, I need to read my three chapters this week to stay on my Bible reading plan. Hey, Jesus, I'm coming to talk to you because I want to get to know you. I want to share my heart with you. I want to hear what your heart is. That's very different than, yes, I made it through my prayer list today. I got everything done. There's something very different than, I'm going to abstain from food so I can control God and he'll meet me and provide me where I'm at from saying, hey, God, you are not with me now and I'm going to give up something that I enjoy that's a distraction in order that I can feast on your presence and know that you are here with me. When we begin to come to these moments with a different perspective, it radically changes those moments and it changes us as we do them. And sometimes it's profound and sometimes it's not profound at all initially. 
I've had these moments. I've had mountaintop moments. I remember going on one particular retreat and spending time intentionally working through some of my own emotional issues and things that I had going on and wrestling with things that I had brought before God and was wrestling with him and reading scripture. And then I had this moment that just brought me to tears as I encountered a passage in scripture where God spoke to me and said, this is the message for everything you've been praying for. But I'm going to be honest, that's not the everyday moments. Most of the moments are far more profound in them. What I find very often is that when I come to Scripture and I start to read it, I say, God, speak to me. Allow this for me to be able to hear your voice. And sometimes it's not in that moment. Sometimes I'll, I'll read through something and I have no idea why I just read that that day. I go, okay. But what's incredible is time and time again, I'll be going through life and I'll be having a conversation with somebody or I'll be wrestling with something and I'll just say, hey, God, help me now. And it's amazing how often that a few days later or a week or two later or a month later, that thing that I had read on that day that I didn't understand suddenly comes to mind and boom, it's God speaking to me now. If we can come to our understanding of spiritual practices in such a way that we just recognize and know that the point wasn't to accomplish something, it was simply to be in the presence of Jesus. Our lives can be changed. Our practice of those things can be changed. It's okay. We learn to be okay with the fact that I read something and I spent time with Jesus and I didn't come away with a, a huge aha moment or tears running down my face because we know that we were faithful in the presence of Jesus, that he was with us and that he will bring that to light in us at the appropriate time. So church... As you consider the disciplines that you will approach, will you go to them to check off your list or will you go to them to spend time with Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And God, it can be a challenge. God, it's so much easier to check things off a list and it's so much easier to just get in a routine. And God, there is that pull within my heart to, to, to perform, to do the right thing. But God, thank you that you give us the freedom to know here and now that, that it's not for those things, but it's just to be in your presence. God, I thank you that you are, even though such, you're such an amazing God, that you are all-powerful, that you're all-knowing, that you see our junk, Lord, that you still invite us into your presence, that you still allow us to have a relationship with you, that you still allow us to be transformed by you even though we certainly do not deserve it. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would become a transformed people, that we would hear the message of your word here today and that we would receive the new life, the new wine that you want to pour into us. God, help us to change the way we view things so we wouldn't be using old wineskins, but we would be open to what new thing you want to do in us today. And God, in all those things, would you get all the glory, honor, and praise from our life and as we display the transformation to the world around us. We love you, God. We thank you for your good word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.